0: Welcome to Cancer HealthCast, where science is driving hope. I'm production lead, Alexander Golova, and with me today is Editor-in-Chief, Amy Kluber. Hi, Amy. Hello, Alex. In advance of Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, we had two returning guests on the show, Dr. Narali Shaw and Dr. Christine Heskey, both pediatric oncologists working with NCI. How'd the conversation go?
1: It was very great. Talk about such fascinating conversations into the cancer research, especially as something as important as childhood cancer. I was so honored to have gotten to talk to both of them. They are super smart.
0: Yeah, I remember from last year's interview as well, just how terrific they are as guests and how important their work is. Before we listen to your interview, I know I am not very well versed in medical terminology, and I don't want to speak for our listeners, but there are some phrases and terms used in your conversation that I think we should define upfront to get the full value from this conversation. So first of all, we hear a lot about T cell and B cell research. What are those? What differentiates them?
1: T-cells are using a patient's immune system to be able to target their, for example, leukemia. Current chemotherapy is mostly leveraging T-cells to target disease. B-cells protect you from infection. So Heskey and Shaw, they talked about how they're more focused on B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or as they'll mention throughout, B-cell ALL. So this is the most common childhood cancer. And the therapies around B-cell is really new and much of what they're focused on around the research.
0: Yeah, and I know immunotherapy is a topic that comes up quite a lot in Cancer HealthCast. I think one of our earlier interviews was with Dr. Steven Rosenberg, all about using immunotherapy treatment for metastatic breast cancer. And it's interesting to track how this treatment is kind of being used across the cancer care spectrum. Another term that is used a lot in your conversation is bench. Not to spoil the interview, but I think we both thought that this was an acronym, but it's not. What does it refer to?
1: Bench. Yeah, super interesting. Um, So bench really refers to studies conducted in the lab. So you'll hear them describe how that means using models of disease, taking samples from human patients, taking it back into the lab to study them. So that's what they mean by bench. And no, you're right. It's not an acronym, like I thought.
0: Nine times out of 10, it is. So it's all it is, (laughs) I guess we're just very primed for that. And then the last term that is used quite a bit is sarcoma. What are sarcomas?
1: Sarcomas are those cancers that start in the tissues like bone or muscle And apparently, as they explained, they actually disproportionately affect adolescents. Uh, So, this is a huge area of what they're focused on to find treatments around and just better innovate around.
0: That's very interesting. And I know it's come up in our previous interviews on childhood cancer, but not being a scientist, typically with older patients, cancer is environmentally influenced in a lot of ways. And childhood cancer, obviously, there just isn't as much environmental exposure. So it is a bit more of a, I don't want to say mystery, but it certainly is a whole other branch of cancer care. With all of that terminology in mind, I hope our listeners enjoy this conversation and continue to think about this very important topic as we look ahead to Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. Thank you, Amy.
1: Thank you, Alex. Welcome to Cancer HealthCast. I'm so happy to be joined by Dr. Narali Shah and Dr. Christine Heskey. I'm really excited to dig into your work in cancer and some of your backgrounds and what led you to the agency. So I want to start first with Christine. What led you to NCI? How did you get involved in cancer research and what does it really mean to you?
2: Um, yeah, so thank you for having me. Uh, I came to this field um, by way of basically interest in um, during medical school, kind of seeing pediatric cancer patients um, go through their treatments and um, post-treatment uh, care, and realizing that there was just such a humongous need for new therapies for our patients. And so, I'm I'm a trained pediatric oncologist, uh, and I did some of my training actually here at the NCI um, as part of a fellowship program. And during that time, I got involved in. Uh, Bench uh, science research, so translational research um, in the lab, which basically um, you know has evolved over time. Uh, while I've been here, to include um, clinical research as well, and so my program is based on um, a, a translational lab-based uh, project, pr- projects that come out of the lab, translational ba- lab-based projects that we hope to move into the clinic for for our patients. My um, my clinical area is is pediatric type sarcoma, um, which are really rare cancers of the bones and soft tissues um, that disproportionately affect adolescents. And unfortunately, in the last probably fifty or mo- more years, we have had very very limited uh, progress in these patients or, or in treating these kinds of cancers. Such that the, the therapies that we use now are actually quite similar to the therapies that we used like back in the seventies and eighties, and so. Um, They're very toxic. They don't work for all of our patients. And so it's a very high need area. Um, And so that clinical background kind of brought me to the field. And that's what my program is focused on now, trying to move um, potentially new, less toxic, more effective therapies forward for these patients.
1: Definitely sounds like there's a lot of room for innovation and uh, much needed work in that field. So that's very exciting, but also you feel the pressure almost to get this over the line. And Narali, I would like to pivot to you. What brought you to the agency? What's your background and research focuses?
3: Yeah, so um, similar to Christine, I also came here for fellowship. Um, my background is actually that I am, um, I did training in both internal medicine and pediatrics. So key area of my research focus is really in adolescent, young adult patients, you know, with that dual training. Um, I had always had an interest in hematologic malignancy. So we're talking about, you know, leukemias, lymphomas, and was really drawn towards stem cell transplant. Um, Just because, you know, I sort of like the idea, you know, you're resetting the the bone marrow, the immune system. Um, And that's really where my focus was. So I went down the route of being a clinical researcher. Um, You know, I did my fellowship here. I got a master's in clinical research through the NIH Duke program. And really, sort of dove um, into how to optimally care for patients who were undergoing transplant. With the idea being that we were going to try to use this, you know, this form of immune therapy to try to prevent patients from having relapse of their disease. As I was here, you know, what was quickly evolving in the immune therapy space was the ability to use T cells and using T cells from patients and engineering them to target markers that were on leukemia cells. And so I found myself. You know, being heavily involved with bone marrow transplant and then CAR T cell therapy, which is what these um, new fancy CAR uh, T cells are called. And so now, um, over the years, um, I am now a tenure track uh, investigator focused on implementing novel types of immune therapy, again, mostly leveraging T cells and using patients' immune system to be able to target their leukemia. And we're specifically focused on patients where standard approaches um are not working. And so they have chemotherapy resistance. And so that's, that's where our space is. And so over the years, we are incrementally making changes to improve upon current strategies, to come up with combinatorial strategies, and then also more recently moving into AML, which is a Um, more rare form of leukemia in pediatric patients, but also much more difficult to treat. Our primary focus thus far has been on B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is the most common childhood cancer.
1: Very interesting. And I really like what you said about, you know, standard therapy isn't working. And I think that a lot of people don't really think about that in the context of cancer, um, which is a a terrible, you know, disease that I'm sure we all want to see eradicated. So Let's start with you're both in the Center for Cancer Research. I know you went through your research priorities and some of the things that you're you're working on. How is the center kind of prioritizing some of these new research areas or what are they really focused on and how to, you know, tackle childhood cancer?
2: So, I mean, I think just kind of as an institute, there's some features of the Center for Cancer Research um, that are available here that are maybe not available in a lot of other cancer centers um, that can help kind of move um, specifically pediatric kind of um, clinical trials um, forward. And and that's the fact that um, because we we deal in rare diseases, because all pediatric cancers are rare diseases, um, we frequently have patients that are kind of, Scattered all over the the country and the world. Um, and so being here allows us to bring the patients to the to the clinical center to enroll them on clinical trials, and that allows us to um, sort of enrich for these rare populations and be able to include them on on clinical trials. I think you know another kind of interesting um, facet of this of the CCR is that you know you have basic researchers here. you have, translational laboratory researchers here and then you have clinical researchers here and there's just a lot of crosstalk between those three groups and that allows for you know really interesting kind of basic discoveries to be made Um, there's an infrastructure to move the most base the most interesting discoveries into the clinic and then there's also kind of in the opposite direction kind of taking insights from the clinic back into the lab and that's pretty seamless um, just because of all the broad expertise that is is here and i think that you know um, for a long time, rare diseases have been a priority, um, you know, of, of, of the NIH and the NCI just in general. And so because all pediatric cancers tend to be rare diseases, it's a nice fit, you know, with the work we do being here.
1: Absolutely. Raleigh, um, anything yeah, to add?
3: Yeah, I think the one thing that I'll add to that, and this is mostly going to be very unique to the cell therapy space, but I think it's a, a really unique um, environment that we've been able to work in. Um, a lot of the cell therapy involves, you know, actually manufacturing and making of the CAR T-cell. So not only are you doing the work at the bench, but then you have to be able to take it to like a clinical manufacturing site to be able to manufacture these CAR T-cells that are going to be given to patients. And that is its own science. Um, I think that we have learned so much over the years about what does it take to not only make this therapy work, but what are the unique manufacturing aspects that are involved with it? And so the ability to have these CAR T cells manufactured on site, have a dedicated team um, that is, you know, through the NIH that is really helping to develop these strategies, optimize these strategies, fine-tune them. And then be able to go back and research some of the products that were manufactured, I think has been really, really critical. And I think that CCR has really taken a lead in championing this effort, especially as you start to see that more and more places around the country are trying to develop these, you know, GMP manufacturing facilities because we recognize how important that resource really is.
1: That's fantastic. And you mentioned a couple times bench. Can you define bench for us, what that means?
2: Um, yeah, so I mean, I talk about the bench basically to mean um, studies that are conducted in the laboratory. So mm-hmm. I'm not, not, not research that's being done in the clinic, um, but, but research that's either being done on models of the disease, so like cell-based models of the disease or animal-based models of the disease, or taking samples from human patients back into the lab to study those samples. So that's what I mean by bench.
1: Fantastic! I thought it was going to be another acronym in in the government no. world, but <laughs> <laughs> darn. <laughs> so it's very interesting to hear some of the the nitty gritty that goes into a lot of the cancer research that a lot of us, you know, only get very surface level understanding of. And then there's such growing priorities in the administration right now around cancer innovation. There's the Cancer Moonshot Initiative. I know NCI has its own National Cancer Plan. What does ending cancer, as we know it, mean to your office or your work in the context of what you do?
2: Sure. I mean, that's a. I mean, that's such a big question. You know, I know that in the moonshot there is a a huge emphasis on cancer prevention, and I think a lot of people, when they think about kind of ending cancer, it's you know getting to the point where we don't even have to treat it because we've identified some precancerous state and we can get rid of it earlier. We can catch it so early that we don't have to do these sort of intensive therapies. I think in the pediatric space, it's a little bit different um, because most pediatric cancers don't have a known kind of predisposition, most of them don't have a known predisposition sort of disease state that all of the patients have where we can say like, if we do surveillance, we're gonna catch this before it comes up. So for me, you know, many of our patients, um, by the time they come to us, there really hasn't been an opportunity for anything like an early detection. And so, you know, at least in the sarcoma space or in the pediatric sarcoma space, I really think of ending cancer as finding effective treatments that will cure our patients. Um, because, you know, as you can imagine, they have a lot of life ahead of them. You know, these these patients are getting their diseases when they're, you know, in their, you know, first or second decade of life. Um, and if we can cure them and the disease doesn't come back, that's obviously um, a huge part of 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 ending cancer, but I think the other kind of side of it is that the all most most of the therapies that we have right now really do carry a lot of toxicity and side effects to the normal organs and the normal cells in the body. And so many many of our patients who are able to survive still experience a, a lot of um, adverse effects, you know, in their health as they age um, and sort of premature aging and other kinds of kind of chemotherapy or radiation induced, uh, side effects. And so I I think the other kind of side of that coin for, you know, ending cancer, as we know it is, is ending the toxicity of the therapies. Um, so that not only are we helping patients survive, but we're helping them survive with the best quality of life that we can, so they can really go on for those, you know, next six, seven, eight decades and, um, and thrive.
1: Definitely. And therapy is supposed to be therapy, not, not toxic. And I really like that angle of, you know, ending cancer is really getting the prevention angle, you know, down packed. nurali what about from your end? How do you see ending cancer as we know it in the context of your work?
3: Yeah, so I will say that um, in the leukemia space, this is specifically for the B-cell ALL, um, immunotherapy has really just taken off. And I am looking to see how it's really going to change the treatment paradigm of what we do for leukemias, and I really look forward to the day when we're able to have as many effective therapies for solid tumors and brain tumors. Because I do think, as it relates to long-term toxicities and late effects, there is definitely a paradigm there that we might be able to offset some of these toxicities that are accumulated from a lot of chemotherapy um, or stem cell transplant. Um, but I really do think that as these therapies are developed, we do need to focus on some of the late effects. I mean. You know, CAR T cell therapy. You know, when we think of it, it's only been around for a decade. In the grand scheme of chemotherapy and what we do for B cell ALL, that's really new. And so, a part of our efforts are actually focused on starting to study these delayed toxicities and late effects through multi center collaborations that we have through the um, leukemia community.
1: Fantastic. Now, I know we mentioned a lot about some of the work at play. You, you know, you mentioned the, the B cell therapies that are. Is it B-cell or T-cell or are they two different
3: it's So it is is T-cell based therapy. So you are taking T-cells, which is part of the immune system, um, and you are redirecting these T-cells to target specific leukemia cells. And in this case, they are targeting B-cells. And so it's T-cell directed therapy against B-cell leukemias and lymphomas.
1: Very interesting. So with some of this work, and I know clinical trials were mentioned, there's uh, drug approvals that you have to go through, even the technology that enables the data sharing for even you two to collaborate with each other and, and communicate with each other. How do you all see some of these moving parts behind the scenes making a difference in the long run to ultimately tackling cancer and getting some of these therapies out there and working and removing the toxicities, for example?
3: Yeah, so I mean, I, I can maybe start with that and, and bring it back to to Dr. Heskey. But, you know, like I said, CAR T-cell therapies in in the B-cell space and the B-cell malignancies, it, it's really been phenomenal. We're talking about seeing, you know, 60, 70 percent complete remission rates in patients where chemotherapy isn't working. And so now we see the potential of that therapy. Um, and so what you want to do is to be able to take something like that and Make it work for other cancers, and I will say that as we've tried to do that, it hasn't been so straightforward. Um, I think we got very lucky with the B cell malignancies. There's a very um, there's a, an established target, which is CD19. It's found on most B cell malignancies. If you get rid of normal B cells, you can be perfectly fine. But as you start to go into other diseases, it may not be a one size fits all. Um, and so I think that what we can learn is from the patients who are not responding to this therapy, why are they not responders? How do we take that information and move it into the solid tumor and the brain tumor space to figure out how do the CAR T cells get to where they need to, what are the things we can do to optimize and make it stronger, or to mitigate the side effects that are associated with it. And so I think um, we wanna learn from some of our most promising approaches and try to figure out the best way to advance you know, what we would say the therapeutic index to make it so that you can have that therapy work for other diseases.
2: Um, I can just pick up kind of on the part of your question about, you know, how technology can can sort of help move the the needle forward. Um, you know, one of the challenges that w- that we have in the solid tumor space, which the leukemia space doesn't have as much, is um, is getting access to high quality specimens. So in, in leukemia, the tumor cells are literally in the blood. And so when you draw a blood sample from a patient who has leukemia, you may get leukemia cells in there and you can study them. In a solid tumor um, patient in general, you have to get a biopsy or a piece of that tumor. And as you can imagine in children, if there's um, not like a really uh, important medical reason to do a surgery or do a biopsy, you're you're, you're very unlikely to be doing of research-based biopsies. And so because of that, that that has sort of ripple effects all the way through the kind of the research process. Um, You know, it has effects for that particular patient potentially. um, If you don't have something to look at their tissue and and understand more about how their disease is evolving, for example. But it also has implications in terms of sort of the creation of preclinical models, um, making you know models that we can use in the lab for further study, capturing kind of the heterogeneity of of one particular patient's cancer, but also the heterogeneity across many patients who have the same cancer. Um, and so I think, you know, in more recent time, there, you know, there's, the, there's this initiative um, that's a government-based initiative called the MCI, um, which is uh, sort of a, a comprehensive analysis of tumor tissue from patients. And it started with patients with brain tumors and soft tissue sarcomas. Um, but the idea is that it will expand into more areas and and you know the the basis of of this is one that we'll kind of understand more about each individual patient, but that also we can pull this kind of data and have this kind of data publicly available. Um, And I think that kind of publicly available facing data on patient samples um, is something that we, you know, have been really missing um, in the field. Uh, And I think, you know, having the technology to enable these sort of web-based platforms where people can go in and interrogate the data and and potentially you know, learn learn new things about the disease from looking at um, data on actual patient samples at a higher volume. You know, has potentially a lot of um, future impact.
1: Definitely, um, you can imagine how much how much you're, I guess you're missing just not being able to have those models and and some of that data easily accessible, which is uh, something you know most people don't really think about. In this context of childhood cancer, rare diseases. What is unique about it that is really kind of pivoting how you're thinking about researching it or treating it? I guess what is it about it being rare that is more difficult?
2: Yeah, I mean, so I, I would say that, you know the most obvious issue with you know studying a rare cancer is that you just when you get into the clinical space for clinical trials, you have so many fewer patients to to study. So when you think about like a breast cancer clinical trial or a colon cancer clinical trial, there's just thousands of patients. And you can sort of test more things because you have more patients to to look at. Um, and you can also sometimes see patterns because you have more patients to look and find those patterns. And so we have just much smaller numbers. Um, you know, a really big study for us is like 400 patients, which is actually not that many patients. And I think that's a huge challenge. Um, I think, you know, we have to design our trials in a way that capitalize on, you know, trying to get as much information out of each patient as we can um, because they are so rare. So really being judicious in how we sample from the patients and then use those samples and the kinds of questions that we ask so that if we do end up having a trial that fails, we have hopefully some understanding of why, um, which I think has historically been an issue. Like we just don't, we don't know why something doesn't work. And Maybe it was just we didn't select the right patients because we didn't know who those patients were because we didn't have enough to sort of find a pattern to figure out who they would be. I think the other challenge of um, working in a rare disease is that you know there's there's a lot less uh, dedicated drug development for rare diseases, and specifically I think that impacts pediatrics especially. Uh, Because most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time before we can have access to a drug for the clinic, um, it has to have some kind of testing in adults first. And so if we're trying to, you know, look at a target that's only on a pediatric cancer, for example, you know, we may never have that drug developed um, because it's not developed for an adult indication. So I think some of those are some of the some of the challenges of working in a rare childhood cancer.
1: Definitely. So going back along the technology thread, we're seeing a lot with AI, for example, now, and how it's going to potentially impact a lot of workflows and processes and just helping people work better. Um, How do you see technology impacting how your work can be shared and researched further, and maybe even making a difference in some of these rare diseases that have such limitations or challenges?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, there is a comment made earlier about um, having your findings being made publicly available. I think the one really nice thing about the pediatric oncology community is that from the very beginning, I think we have recognized the important need of collaboration and coming together. Um, because when you have just a handful of patients that you're going to see, you know, at your institution, you can't really make the big changes that you want to make without collaborating. Um, And so, whether it's through the children's oncology group, multi-center collaborations or the sharing of your data that you learned through your institutional phase one trial of maybe what worked and what didn't work, I think that that is going to be really critical to being able to advance therapies, including technologies, um, as it relates to these very rare cancers. Um, I had mentioned briefly that comment about the manufacturing and making iterative changes, but I will say that, you know, one of our observations was in order to make CAR T-cells, you have to select T-cells from a patient. Um, And then you try to actually make them into these functional CAR T-cells. And we learned again, over the years of how to optimize that process. And that one of the changes that we were able to implement is now used sort of broadly across the field in terms of how to manufacture CAR T cells most effectively. And so I think it's that type of knowledge that I think really helps um, for it to be disseminated and to make you know the therapies that you want to advance work a little bit better.
2: Yeah. And I would agree with basically everything that um, Norelli said. I think data sharing, data harmonization, Um, you know, there are like some efforts right now to harmonize data between groups that are based in, you know, the Americas with groups that are based in Europe. Um, Because again, you know, with these rare diseases, amassing the most data for, uh, you know, of the patients that you have is going to hopefully give you more answers than um, just looking at a small subset. Um, And so I think that there's like a lot of opportunities there. I also think, you know, from the question about AI, I think AI could potentially have a lot of powerful implications for the way that globally pediatric cancer is, um, is addressed. So, you know, here we have access to so much technology, you know, a patient can have a new diagnosis of cancer and we can kind of very relatively rapidly look at all the important genes and see kind of whether there are mutations in those genes and things like that. And a lot of, um less resourced countries don't have that ability. And I think with some of the AI that's currently being developed, trying to kind of use something simple like, you know, a picture of the biopsy sample and then an algorithm that's been developed over time, you know, we may be able to kind of export that level of um, molecular detail to to places that, you know, can't run those tests um, the way that we can, um, but but will instead rely kind of on an AI-based tool. So I think that there's potential there as well.
1: That's very exciting. Well, in this childhood cancer awareness month, is there anything to close with that um, you are particularly excited about, or something that is really top of mind for you this month?
3: I think um, I would. I I think that we should really thank our patients and our parents and care providers. You know, when they enroll on trials, regardless of what phase it is, they are really contributing to making advances for for future children who are going to encounter that disease. And I can't begin to thank them enough for their participation, recognizing that it may not help them, but it may help somebody in the future. And I think that that's invaluable. I think that there is a really important role of patient advocacy and, you know, you know being partners, I think I think of our patients and care providers and care or yeah caregivers, um rather as partners in the work we do. And what I'm hoping that we can start to see more of is that as we improve therapies, that we're also improving access, that we're addressing issues that involve, you know health disparities and overcoming those challenges as well in um, trying to really improve outcomes overall, both in the short and the long term.
1: Well, fantastic. This has been an awesome conversation. Um, it's very interesting work and getting to learn more about the programs and some of the initiatives and how you know technology is going to really make a difference in some of these rare diseases and helping patients' lives ultimately is incredibly fascinating. So thank you so much for breaking it down for me and our listeners. And um, I look forward to see what's next. Thanks for having
3: us. Yeah, thank you.
0: HealthCast, along with GovCast and CyberCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at govcio.com dot com.